Thanks, guys. I love how you lead us in worship. It's a privilege, isn't it? So thank you, thank you, thank you, and thank you, uh, church, for singing so well. Just hearing you behind me worshiping is such a blessing. Um, it's my privilege this morning to speak from God's Word. Uh, we're going to continue in our series in awe, and if you're not already there, if you want to take your Bibles and get to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34, I'm going to read verses uh, 6 and 7 if you want to join me. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by, by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Much of the time when we were raising our kids when they were younger, we lived in Vancouver, and for part of the time we lived just below uh, Queen Elizabeth Park, which is quite renowned for its beauty, especially in the spring and summer. They plant flowers there and everything comes to life. It's absolutely gorgeous. I would often go up there for a walk just to clear my head or even to pray. And often when you're there, especially on a weekend, there would be artists who would be there. They'd have their easels and they'd be painting pictures. It might be a portrait, might be a landscape or whatever. And I, I mean, being a person who's very non-artistic, I would really appreciate uh, what they were painting and sometimes look at it and go, wow, like that's beautiful. But as I'm looking, the, the artist is continuing to paint. They're not done. And I'd go for my walk, maybe 20, min 20 minutes, 30 minutes, come back to the courtyard where they're painting. And you can see that as they continued to paint, the, the picture became even more fully developed. Today, as we're looking at the passage of Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at a declaration by God to Moses of who he is through his name, explaining his character, and we've gone through it one phrase at a time. And I hope as we've done that, you know, our, our understanding of God has been developing, it's been growing, we've been getting a fuller picture. We've looked at the Lord, the Lord, which is the, the in, when you read in the, in the Bible and it's capitalized, L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, Yahweh. It's like God has many names given to him, but this is the personal name of God given to Moses. It means self-existent, eternally consistent. And now God is revealing to Moses what he's eternally consistent in, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundant and steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And we'd like to stop there, wouldn't we? I mean, that's a great picture of God. And I know that Jesse and myself have so enjoyed preaching and teaching from, from what we've unpacked so far. But we find ourselves now here at this point, and I think for some of us we'd like to stop there, but there's more to be painted we do not yet have a full and complete picture of what God wants to reveal to us about who He is. Because these are not someone else's words about who God is. This is God Himself revealing to Moses and so revealing to us, this is what I'm like. One who will by no means clear the guilty. 
but visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I've had people uh, ask me, uh, knowing that this phrase is coming, what are you going like, to teach and preach on that? Lucky you. Someone said, you made your bed, now sleep in it. This is so negative, isn't it? Like people don't want to hear stuff like this or it's contradictory, isn't it? I mean, how can a God who loves be what this shows to be a God who also judges? Or how can God say he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin on one hand, but then says he won't clear the guilty? Like, isn't that what forgiveness is, clearing the guilty? So this morning, we're going to try to walk our way through it, and I hope it makes sense by the time we're at the end, and I hope it causes us to worship. We're going to look at four things. God judges. The judgment of God is an expression of his goodness. We deserve judgment. And then lastly, oh, and this is so good, that it is God's intention, God's desire, and that God has made a way for mercy, that we experience mercy over judgment. So let's begin. God judges, who will by no means clear the guilty. In the other translations, like NIV, a new, na- new English translation, it says, God will not let the guilty go unpunished. God judges sin. As God reveals himself to Moses, he's saying, you need to know this. Uh, of all the other things I've revealed to, to you, you need to know this. God judges sin. And when you hear that word sin, I mean, you don't have to be a churchgoer. Maybe you're here, you, you don't go to church regularly, but it doesn't matter. If you go to church or don't go to church, Most of us understand, like, sin is a bad thing, and it causes bad things to happen. It breaks up our relationships. Uh, Sin causes us to get in places where uh, we find ourselves in bondage that destroy us. Sin causes us to experience woundedness or brokenness, and all these things are true, and all these things are important, but if that's your only understanding of sin, I would suggest to you this morning that's a distorted view of sin. Because sin, first of all, is an offense against God. First of all, sin is an offense against God. It's a transgression against God's better way. It's a rebellion against the Creator. It's disobedience against the Lord of the universe. And as we read right from the beginning of the story of the Bible, it has consequences. We've talked about it often because it's so, it, the story of Adam and Eve in the beginning is so impactful on what happens in the world even today. God gave them a command. They decided they knew better. They disobeyed it. The result of that were consequences. The land was cursed. So as man works the land, he has trouble with it. It brings up weeds. It causes more toil. The relationship is going to struggle between man and woman. And even in the commandment that they're given to multiply, they will experience pain as a woman gives birth to a child, and most women can, that have had a child can say yes to that. That is so true. But the greatest consequence is death. Rebellion, disobedience, transgression against God results in the consequence, the judgment of death, because God judges sin. We read a little more in the book of Genesis a few generations later, and we find that sin is so rampant, there's so much violence, there's so much wickedness, that God has to judge the world with a flood. And the consequence is death, because God judges sin. 
And here we are, we're in Exodus, just the second book of the Bible, and again, we've seen that God has judged. He judged a nation of Egypt with ten plagues so that they would set the people of Israel, let them go because they were abusing them, they were violent towards them, they subjected them to slavery, and so God judges Egypt, and Israel experiences God's mercy and grace, but then they find themselves at the base of a mountain with their leader going up to God, meeting with God, and it takes longer than they expect, so they begin to, to commit adultery, spiritual adultery. They worship a golden calf, and God exercises judgment. And there are some, there are 3,000 in fact, who experience that God will by no means clear the guilty, and they suffer the consequence of death. It's shortly thereafter that we have this experience of Moses with God as he's securing the presence of God with God's people that God says to him, this is also who I am. I will by no means clear the guilty. God judges sin. How does that make you feel? How does that rest with you? Does that, has that been part of your picture of God because this is what God wants us to see and to understand as we think about him. God judges sin. He will by no means clear the guilty. That word guilty refers to like culpability, like responsibility. So uh, here at Central Heights, we believe that people are personally free, that they, they make their actions not based on God's decree, that God made people sin, but they commit actions freely and so when they sin when they disobey when they transgress against God they've done that by their free will and so are rightly held accountable for that God says he will by no means clear the guilty visiting he says the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children now this is where where we have to work our way through it in Ezekiel chapter 18 it says these words the soul who sins shall die. We've talked about that. There's a consequence to sin, death. The soul who sins shall die. But Ezekiel says, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. In other words, every person will be personally responsible for their actions, and whether they do good or whether they do evil will, will experience the consequences of that. So how can God say that he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children? Well, to give us a little bit of insight, uh, I'd like to quote Waldemar Jansen. I think he rightly should live in Abbotsford. Waldemar Jansen, in his commentary on Exodus, he says, it appears as if God in a vindictive manner remains on the trail of a sinner's descendants and eventually catches up with unsuspecting grandchild or great-grandchild or great, or great But he says the perception misses the point. Jansen reminds us that in those days, people lived a little differently than today, in our culture anyways, is that families were together, like a, a, a father, the patriarch of the family, may have several generations living with him. And so the, the, the experience of the father, like the goodness of the father, like we dedicated babies today, and you think about the impact of of parents who love God and walk with God, how that runs through the generation and then the next generation. So in a good, in a good way that can happen, but also in an, 
in an evil way if a father's wicked, and let's say he's a drunkard. And that has impact immediately, not just on himself, but on his children and potentially on his grandchildren and maybe even the great-grandchildren. The consequences of the father are not isolated just to the mom and dad. We see this very, very clearly as you just continue into uh, the book of Numbers. After the children of Israel have left the Mount of Sinai and they begin to journey towards the promised land and then they're on the precipice of the, of the promised land. Like they're right there. They can possess it. And they send 12 spies into, into the land and they come back to give their report. And 10 of them give an evil report of fear and doubt. And they don't go in. They, they don't trust God. They don't believe Him for the promise. And so they suffer the consequences. Ten of those spies die by plague. And God says, even though Moses secures God's presence and for him to be with him, as we read in Numbers 14, as Moses speaks to God and says, now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Where did Moses get that? Exodus 34, where we're looking, and as Moses talks with God, he recalls to God the kind of character and person that God is, and God says, yes, I'm going to continue to be for you, but every person who's over 20 years of age and older will never see the promised land. They will suffer the consequences of their sin. So when you think about it, mom and dad who have been, maybe they were 30, 40, 50, 60 years of age, they were not able to go into the promised land, but neither were their children and neither were their grandchildren for the next 40 years. The kids suffered the consequence of the disobedience, the rebellion of their parents. God who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. We also see a little more clarity when we look at previous words in Exodus chapter 20. When we read there, it says, You shall not bow down to or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, speaking of idols, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. In other words, God isn't going to arbitrarily visit iniquity on a grandchild. No, if, if generation after generation those people continue to hate God, then God will allow them to suffer the consequences because God is a God who judges sin. Hmm. But we need to know that God's judgment is an expression of God's goodness. In context, as we go back to Exodus chapter 33 and chapter 34, Moses had this big ask, God, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I'm going to do it. Here's what's going to happen. God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. And so as we see here in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, as God reveals himself through the proclamation, the declaration, revelation of his name, we can't go, mercy, oh, check, good, that is so good. And I, and I got to say, I've so enjoyed preaching about God's mercy and grace, grace, check, slow to anger, I'm so glad, check, 
abundant in love, steadfast love, and faithfulness, check, for thousands, check, oh, God is good, yeah, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, check, all of it, God's goodness, and so is this, we have a God who judges sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, this is an expression of his goodness. You know, if you've studied or looked at history at all and you, you see when nations have anarchy, when there's no rule, there's no consequences, that is not a good thing. Most of us understand there is a place, some, there is a place for, for judgment. When, when we see abuse, when we see violence, when we see the vulnerable taken advantage of, there, there is within us a natural sort of outrage that occurs from within us. And it is such a good thing that God holds sin accountable for those who have suffered injustices. It's not just what happens in this life, it's what happens in the next, that there is hope for them. There, there, is, a, there is a vision, there's a picture that in the end, God will make all things right. We read in Revelation chapter 6, there's a picture of those who've been martyred for their testimony in the Word of God, and it, it hears their cry, God, how long till you avenge our blood? Because we've suffered unjustly. In Romans chapter uh, 12, it says that we are not to take vengeance. We're not to, to reply or take revenge on other people. Why? Because God will take care of that. So we never have to live in a world where we try and make sure things are right. You know, we, we, uh, we give back of, of kind. When, when evil is done to us, no, we can absorb, we can, we can take it because we know that in the end, God judges sin. It's an expression of his goodness. And in the end, everything will be made right. This is who God reveals himself to us as. But there's a problem, isn't, isn't there? God judges sin, it's expression of his goodness, doesn't clear the guilty. What if I'm guilty? What if I deserve judgment? There's a, quite the story in, uh, in 1 Samuel, the story of King David. And in 1 Samuel chapter 11, it talks about David goes out one day, he goes out onto his rooftop. As a king, he can look around and see and he sees a beautiful woman having a bath. Now, it's the time when his armies go out to war. David probably should have been with them for whatever reason he's not. But as he sees this woman, he has his servants inquire about her, finds out that she is married. She's in a covenant relationship with a man. But David sins. And he has her brought to him. They commit adultery. She becomes with child. And so David... Uh, has her husband murdered so that nobody can know or her husband would not know that they've committed adultery. And so, uh, and, and David thinks he's got away with this. But we read at the beginning of chapter 12, God sends his prophet in the right time and he comes to David and, and he confronts David in, by way of a parable, by way of a story. And he begins to tell David the story. There was two men, they lived in a city. One was poor and he had one lamb one lamb, and the lamb was very dear to them, so dear, it was like part of the family. They fed it at the table. The other man was rich. He had flocks. He had herds, like hundreds of lambs. 
And this rich person has a visitor come from out of town and in hospitality, always took care of your visitors. But rather than, than kill one of his lambs for, for the meal, he, he takes the one lamb of the poor man and uses it for his hospitality. As David's hearing this story, he becomes outraged. That man should die. Precisely, Nathan says, you are that man. In Romans, it's a really interesting couple of first chapters. In Romans chapter 1, uh, we're, it's a bit of a setup by the Apostle Paul. And in Romans chapter 1, if you were a Jew, you'd be reading. And Paul begins to talk about how the Gentiles in particular have rejected God and they've gone to their own way. And God lets them just spiral down into this downward spiral of sin. At the end of chapter 1 of Romans, it's, Paul says they deserve to die. And as a Jew, you might be hearing that and going, yeah, those Gentiles, they're such bad people. They deserve to die. But then Paul flips the tables. And in, in Romans chapter 2, he begins to talk about how the, the Jews are just like them. How they are sinning just like the Gentiles. And when you get to chapter 3, Paul writes these words. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, all, you, me, Jew, Greeks, are under sin. All of us. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Later in Romans, Paul will say the wages of sin is death. What do we deserve? God's judgment. What is God's judgment? What is the consequence? Death, separation from God. That's what we deserve. But God, but God, desires and makes a way that our experience will be mercy over judgment. So we go back to Exodus chapter 34 and we hear these words, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty. We see within that, if we're, gonna, if we're going to understand that God is a God who, ju who judges, by the same right, we can't forget that He is also merciful, that He is also gracious, that He is also full of love, and that He also forgives. And how does He work all of that together? Well, God couldn't just forgive Moses and his people by saying, I forgive you, okay. All right, Moses, I forgive you. No, God had a way for his people to be forgiven. And it included a, a, a way, a, a method. They sacrificed animals. There was killing and there was blood. And we go today like, what was, like, what's that all about? Well, it was a vivid, ongoing illustration that there was a cost to sin. Something, someone had to pay the price. There's a cost to this, the cost of life. That sin brings death. Fast forward generation after generation after generation after generation after generation. And we get to Jesus. 
And though within all those generations, in that timeline of history, from Moses to Jesus, there are those who are so sinning against God that God judges them in part, yet God's steadfast love from generation to generation to generation to generation will not cease. And we get to Jesus and we see the faithfulness of God. Jesus, whose name, as we learned in Matthew chapter 1, his name means Yahweh saves. And Matthew tells us exactly how he saves for he shall save his people from their sins. John sees Jesus and declares, Behold, the Lamb of God. What does he do? He takes away the sins of the world. It is the mercy and grace of God that throughout Scripture warns us that God judges. It's the mercy and grace of God, both in the Old and in the New Testament, that warns us that God judges us, judges, and that there will be a day yet to come where there is a day of accountability, a day of judgment. That is the mercy of grace of God to let us know that it is coming. It's like if you were, t- if you were in, a, in a class in school and all of a sudden your professor or teacher said, okay class, today you're going to have an exam and it's worth all your marks for this whole course. But he never told you, he never warned you. you can, I can guarantee you most of the students would go, that's unfair. God has been fair. He's been loving, he's been gracious, and he's been telling us in his word, over and over and over again, I judge sin. There's a day of accountability. There's a day of judgment coming. But you don't have to be one of the guilty. So he sends Jesus, who takes on human flesh, lives a perfect life that we could never live, goes to the cross willingly, And there we are told that the grace and the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, and the justice of God all come together in that one event. As Jesus stands in our place, takes our sin upon himself, a sin which which he is crucified in but cannot hold him because he is perfect. And so he rises from the dead that whoever believes in him can receive his declaration forgiven clean, pure, just, justified, righteous with God as if you'd never sinned in Christ Jesus. At the cross, God satisfies His justice and magnifies His love and His mercy and grace. Let me read to you the words from Isaiah chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, 
And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and he was put to grief. But listen to this. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The Bible says, he who has made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't have a right relationship with Jesus, God is offering it to you. The only condemnation, the only guilt that, that need to remain only happens when we reject God's only sacrifice, His gift, His provision, His grace and mercy through His Son, Jesus Christ. God's offering that to you today if you're not in that right relationship with God. And after the service this morning, we'd love to talk with you further. But for those of us that, that know God, have a relationship with Him, knows it, Notice how Moses responds to this full revelation of who God is. It says he worshipped. Quickly, he worshipped. How can you not worship a God who loves and who judges and pours out his mercy and grace so that we could be part of his kingdom, part of his family for eternity? Oh, there's a mirage, of, a mirage. there's a, a mixture of responses that include our worship. There's repentance and turning to God in those places where we're, 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 we're sort of compromising. It, this is the, as we think of God, this is the place to come back and say, God, I'm sorry, and return to Him. There, there's a reason to walk in the fear of the Lord, which to me means like when I see God's warnings of, of certain things, and it's like a... a, a a cliff or an overhang where there's a sign that says, you know, this, is, this, could, this could collapse at any time. I, I fear going to those places. Rather, I flee and I flee to God. I fear when I'm over here, but when I'm over here in God's presence, I, I'm, I'm filled with love. And yet I fear to go there because I know the consequences of it. There's a fear of the Lord, a right fear of the Lord. At the same time, how can you not love a God who's loved us in this way through his only son? And then how can we not proclaim this? How can we not proclaim a God who is like this to our friends and our families and our neighbors who so desperately need to know that God wants them to experience mercy and not judgment? How can we not worship him in every area of our life, in the fullness of who he is, a God who is merciful and gracious, steadfast in love, forgiving, but who will no way clear the guilty? Let's pray. God, you are worthy to be worshiped. And Lord, we just want to proclaim that all of you is right and good. Just as your love is right and good, Lord, so are your judgments. We want to be a people, Lord, that praise you for all that you are and all that you do. 
We ask you to forgive us, Lord, where we've been ashamed or judged you for, for you exercising judgment. Rather, may we be a people, Lord, that embraces all of you and glorifies you for all that you are and all that you do. Lord, I'm asking that the, the presence and power of your Holy Spirit will help us to live in ways, Lord, that we walk in holiness, Lord. If you hate sin, how could we walk in it, Lord? I pray that you would empower us not to do those things we don't want to do, Lord, but sometimes find ourselves doing. Thank you that you forgive us and cleanse us, Lord. Thank you also for the provision of your spirit. And I'm asking that you would empower us, Lord, to be ambassadors who walk in holiness and proclaim you with boldness and courage because we just can't believe what a good God you are. I pray these things in Jesus' name.